you are in the adult class, we'll be studying the book of Exodus for the next 12 weeks. Uh, I will do the main portion of the teaching, but I've got to be gone. Uh, This is all Levi's fault that I'm teaching, by the way, Uh, just to let you know, and I think he just walked out when I said that. There he is. It's all Levi's fault that I'm teaching because he was going to be teaching something, I know. Anyway, um, Rick will be uh, working alongside and filling in for um, maybe three of the 12 uh, weeks, but uh, I am um, very thankful to be a part and have you here. Um, Hope that it will be a blessing to you and encouragement to you. Let's have a word of prayer. And we will get started. Father, we thank you for our deliverance from our misery. And we gather here this morning to worship and offer to you our praise and gratitude for the salvation that we enjoy because of the exodus that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross that we will see today even. And I pray, Father, that you will bless your people as we seek to feast upon the word of God. Uh, Give us your manna from heaven, and I pray that we will see you in all of your glory and wonder and might as we go through this series. So bless us now as we begin this study of Exodus, and may you be glorified in it. And we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of my fonder memories in growing up was spending Saturday at the matinee at the local theater. Some of you are old enough, maybe you remember that, you did that. We would go and watch all those kids get together, and if you don't have a clue what this means, we went to watch a cereal. You know what a cereal is? That's not with a C that you eat, this is with an S. And I feel sorry for you if you missed that, because it was truly a great cultural phenomenon in American history. If you don't know quite what it is, think Star Wars, uh, as Star Wars was... uh, came out in episodes, episode episode 4, A New Hope, episode 5, Empire Strikes Back, episode 6, Return of the Jedi. Um, Forget the first three, they're no good. But the uh, only, only what happens here in this is everything is compressed. Thank you. By the way, you're getting a sheet from my associate, uh, Levi, and uh, appreciate his work there. This is a sheet for some notes for you to be able to take with you, but also take notes on the back if you'd like. Anyway, uh, I can remember that going there on a Saturday morning, I I would get a box of popcorn for 20 cents, and I would get a Coke for 10 cents, and then a candy bar for 5 cents, and a movie ticket for 50 cents. For under a dollar, I could have a blast on Saturday mornings along with the rest of the kids. And we would watch things like The Adventures of Captain Marvel, Flash Gordon, Radar men from the moon. Don't these sound exciting? You can see why I use Star Wars because of all those. And then there was the Lone Ranger, too. All this on a Saturday morning. This was great stuff. Films were only about 10 to 20 minutes each. So they were very fast through. But, uh, but one, uh, these various episodes, there are usually about 12 of them. So 12 weeks, the theater had us hooked because they always ended with an exciting ending where you went, oh! What's happening? What's going to happen now? This is kind of what's going to be happening here because there's so much going on in the book of Exodus. And if you'll forgive the analogy here, 
what we're going to go through is like a serial, 12 weeks, and uh, I hope it'll be exciting for you, certainly informative, and I hope that it will challenge you spiritually and bless you. So the first five books of the Bible are like a serial, and Exodus is the sequel to Genesis. So the story of Exodus picks up where Genesis leaves off. There's a, a small growing family with Jacob at his head. They move down to Egypt where Jacob's son, one of his 12 sons, Joseph, has achieved fame and, and fortune and position, and he can offer protection and provision for the entire clan. God is good. We've got a new place. We've got friends in high places. Uh, we're all supplied with our needs. But with the passing of time, something takes place. Whereas the book of Genesis begins with the dramatic words, In the beginning, God. God created. So we come to the end of the book of Genesis, and there, right at the beginning of Exodus, book, the book of Genesis ends with the words, five very dreadful words, in a coffin in Egypt. From God creating the worlds, we end up in Genesis in a coffin and at a funeral. It's a very difficult time. Sins invaded the world. It comes with it comes disaster, death. And as the book of Exodus opens then, and turn there to Exodus chapter 1, we find that we read the first lines, those first few verses, and we wonder... Is there any hope? Look with me there in those opening verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came from Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, Joseph already being in Egypt. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. This is, this is just a sudden shock as you begin the book of Exodus. Everything is going wrong. Joseph, who had been their savior of sorts, he's gone. Dad is gone. The brothers are gone. Now, yes, the family is increasing. And you see that as you read on there. But... We come upon verse 8, and there's a cloud hanging over the story still. Notice what it says. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It might be because he, he just didn't know about him. It might be because he just totally dismissed him. He didn't care. Probably the new king is Tutmose III. I'll get into that in a later talk that we have. But our concern over the situation is justified as we read of the rising tensions and problems that are going on. It appears the family is going to experience some very difficult times, and they do. And, and these difficult times, it's not just for days or weeks or months. It's for years, decades, centuries, four centuries. But the book of Exodus is not a story of hopelessness. That's the good news. That's the gospel here. 
Whereas it begins in the shadow of death with a merciless king, Pharaoh, the story turns inside out as the closing words of the book paint a picture for us of God's people being free and living under the protection and presence of God himself. The last verse of Exodus, chapter 40, verse 38. Listen. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. All Israel, all their journeys, God is there. One of the key words, themes that you'll see throughout Exodus is God is with us. So, we're going to take a a look here at, at an overview. So, we're turning here to Exodus 1. The Hebrews call this book, by the way, we call it Exodus. The Hebrews actually call this book names, Shemoth. And that's because of the opening words. And this is the way the Hebrews title their books, according to the opening words, so you could find it in a scroll. All right, look for the word Shemoth, and you got it. So our name comes from a Latin word, which means departure or the way or the road out. It's similar to our word Right back there, there's the word exit. And what does exit mean? Where's my Latin scholars? That's, I mean, I was saying English word. It means, all right, this is the way you can go out, right? It means he, she goes out. So it, it's a verb. It tells us, you know, what we can do. We've changed it into a noun. That's the exit there. Ex-adas. Ek is out of. Hadas is the other Greek word that was carried over into the Latin, which is carried over into the English. And that hados means way or road. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the hados. He's the way. And I'll show you another surprising passage, even more explicit a little later. So this word, Exodus, does appear in the book of Exodus. Chapter 19, verse 1, a Greek translation known as the Septuagint that Jesus himself used. It says, on the third new moon after the people had gone out of the land of Egypt. Uh, That phrase, going out, coming out, is used some 26 times in 11 chapters in the book of Exodus. It becomes a very key word because that's what Exodus is all about. It's a way out There was no way out for the people when you read those first seven chapters. How do we get out of this? They couldn't do anything to save themselves. If they were going to be saved, then someone had to step in and take care of that. So the very name of this book is linked with redemption and liberation so that God's people might possess all that He has promised them. Exodus, again, is one of the five written uh, scrolls of Moses. It's a history of God's people, and yet it's much more than that. Because it's a book, a revelation of historical truth. What we read here, there's some fantastical stories in in Exodus. And uh, we come upon the ten plagues. By the way, they're never called plagues in Exodus. They're called signs and wonders which is also what Jesus did, signs and wonders. But there, there is that. It's theological truth, and we're going to see, and every week I hope, and you'll see this this morning even, that as we unfold the chapter, there's so much theological truth 
that is there for us that tells us about God's redemption. Exodus is a picture, and it's a reality of God's redemption. And it's what we also experience. And it's practical truth, because you'll be challenged, I trust, about Christian living and living out the gospel because God has redeemed us. So as uh, one of the five books there, we see then this redemptive plan. Genesis is the preface, it's preparatory, of what Yahweh, God, pause there for a minute. If you think of the book of Exodus, what do you think about? Moses, the great deliverer, and he is. Moses, uh, his name appears 291 times. Pretty impressive. He's obviously a main character but not the main character. Yahweh, the, the word Yahweh, Jehovah, that, and it's, you see it in the English with all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, appears 398 times, and the name God, an additional 111 times, said over 500 times you're going to see God, and that's in 1,213 verses. That means once every two to three verses, God is there. God is there. God is there. But the people sometimes probably wonder, where is God? In fact, we will see that today as well. So God here, Yahweh, is creating a nation, rescuing a nation, giving them his law, and calling them to be holy and obedient in worship and service. Now, I need to I tell you that Genesis is the background. So let's go back to Genesis for a moment. Put a marker in Exodus 1. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. There's something I should have shown you already. Sorry about that. I don't have that coordinated with my notes. By the way, you'll see I actually did this on parchment that I got from Egypt. If you were wondering why it looks like this today, it was an amazing thing that I was able to accomplish there. But God is good. So, historical truth, theological truth, practical truth. You didn't need all that anyway. All right, so here's the thing. Let's go back and see why are we where we are in Exodus 1. Look here, first of all. God's call to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I will make you a great nation. As I'm reading this, by the way, I want you to pick out what are some key words or key ideas. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, a key to figuring out what's really important is what's repeated. What do you see here? What's repeated? There's hints right at the bottom. (laughs) I guess nobody can read. Can you see this? Okay. What is it? Great nation. All right. Great name. By the way, they're going to make it, God's going to make them a great name. He has the great name. He's going to give them a great name and then great blessing. So that was the initial uh, call of Abraham. I know there's more to it than that. So let's go to Genesis 15. 1 to 21 is uh, the entire section. We're not going to read all of that. But here's what we will read. And he, God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. But he said, O Lord God, how shall I know that I shall possess it? 
All right. Takes him outside. We see all these stars. You ever tried to count the stars? Can't do it. Okay. This is what I'm going to give you. How do I know that? Well, the next verse. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not there and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Okay, stop right there. What's, what's the important idea so far? What's, what additional information is God giving to Abraham? It's up there. The nation will what? Expand. The nation's going to expand. They're going to multiply. Okay. Are they going to be in the land? No. They're going to be sojourners elsewhere. What will they be while they're sojourners in that land? They will become what? Servants. You want a nicer word? Slaves. They will end up in the house of bondage. And what will happen as they're slaves? What will they suffer? Affliction. And will it be just a short-term thing? Okay, you can make it through, you know, 400 years. Okay, you're doing well. You're beginning to read. But, but notice this. But, God says, but, here's part of the promise. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out and exodus with great possessions and they shall come back here in the fourth generations for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God was had work to do in Canaan before he took care of some things in Egypt. Okay, so you all with me so far? Let's go on. That's to Abraham. Isaac also heard from God. We know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. Look what it says about them. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land in which I shall tell you. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you and will bless you, you and your offspring. And I will give you these lands, and I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give you offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All right? So there's, there's this repetition, a confirmation to Isaac of what's going to happen. Doesn't tell Isaac all the problems that are going to come along. But he says, don't go down to Egypt. Because at that moment there in uh, Genesis 26, there were some temptations for him to go down. But he did not do that. All right. So then comes Jacob. And behold... The Lord stood above above it, and that he stood above the ladder. We're at Bethel. God appears to Jacob. The Lord speaks from above the ladder, from heaven itself. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and your father and, uh, your father and God of Isaac. The land on which uh, you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Wow. I mean, that's explicit, right? I'm going to be with you. I'm going to do exactly what I said. Just trust me. And wherever you go, I'm going to be with you. 
obviously there's going to be a trip. Now, one more person we want to hear here. Well, this also. So Israel took his journey uh, with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba. That's the very southern border of Israel, of what we know today as Israel, and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to him in visions in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am, here am I. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Whoa. Now, here, here is a very deep question. Why did God say to Jacob, do not fear to go down to Egypt? Kathy will answer that. No. <laughs> well, there was a famine. There were problems. But he said, don't fear to go down to Egypt. It's because he was afraid. There's something here because he stops and he makes an offering before God and he's wondering, should I really go down? Because I'm leaving the land of promise. This is where I should be. But he says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes, Jacob. It's going to be all right. Calm yourself. Let's look at Joseph now. Genesis 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God. It's one of those great statements again that Dennis Bullock loves, but God. We'll see a bunch of those in in Exodus. I'm about to die, but God. I'm dying, God lives. And God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He knew the promises of God as well, and he assured them, trust God, be faithful. What did it say Hebrews eleven twenty two? By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the what? Exodus. See, even Joseph knew there would be an exodus, a way out, a way back to the blessings of God and he gave directions concerning his bones. So, that's the backdrop to Genesis. Sets Exodus at center stage now. There's a continuity with God's covenant promises to all the patriarchs. Everything now is pointing toward the events of the Exodus that Joseph himself mentioned, and where we will uh, see the redemption of God's people. Now, <clears throat> let's go, we're to Exodus 1. Exodus views terms. I want you to look for a minute there at Exodus and the gospel. I don't have this on your sheet. I did. You have a handout sheet, and there's one at the back if you need one. Here's a, here's a quote from um, Leland Riken. Exodus views salvation in terms of freedom from captivity. I don't think I have. Let me see if I've got this. Yes. Freedom from captivity. Redemption from slavery. Adoption as children, the substitution of sacrificial blood, Passover, and membership in a worshiping community. There's the tabernacle, okay? Now, that's Exodus. Does that parallel theologically anything that you as God's people today are familiar with? 
like the Israelites. Second quote, we have been delivered from the Egypt of our sin. Now we're traveling through the wilderness waiting for the day when we will enter the promised land. Thus, we can trace the story of Exodus somewhere in the geography of our souls. I love that last line. You should be able to trace the geography of your salvation right there in all of this. I still have some things on this I need to deal with. Okay. So, now, let's look at the structure of this. And in my, my, my hope here is, in the next couple of minutes, that I can give you a structure of the book of Exodus that will help you say, oh, now I see how it's laid out. There, there is intentionality here. There is a sense of of uh, movement here, and everything works together. Because Exodus, you know, you get excited about the first few chapters, but what about the rest of those? You know, when you get down to after chapter 20 and you start getting into laws and tabernacle and descriptions of building things, you, you get kind of bored. Well, let's, let's look at this. Geographically, we could, you could make a geographic outline of Exodus. The first 13 chapters... They're in Egypt. That's the first 13 chapters of Exodus. They're in the wilderness, chapters 14 to 18. And then they're at Sinai, chapters 19 through 40. So that kind of gives you the geography of what Exodus is all about. But I want to give you something more. And you can look here on the sheet that you have as well. I'll put it up here. This is from J.A. Motier. Motier is an outstanding commentator, uh, teacher. Uh, he passed away just a few years ago. Um, I have several of his commentaries and books. Uh, our pastor now preaching Isaiah, one of his key books that he has, is probably the best commentary on Isaiah ever written, J.A. Motier. He is excellent at looking at a text, analyzing a text, exegeting a text. Here's the way he organized it this way. Israel and Egypt, using the same thing, those Egypt, Sinai, and then the tabernacle. So Israel and Egypt, we see God as the Savior. There is hidden providence. All right, that's chapter 1 and 2. Hidden providence. In other words, God is working, and he's, and he's working in unseen ways. That's good for me to know. Because sometimes, as I look out over my life, as you probably do too, you're wondering, where is God? But God is always, always, always at work in our lives through hidden providence. And Yahweh will be revealed in some way. How is he revealed here? Well, his name Yahweh comes in the book of Exodus. That's how we know it. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Isn't Yahweh's, uh, Yahweh's name used in Genesis? Yes, it is. But they did not know the meaning of that name. They did not understand what the name Yahweh really meant to them personally until we get to Exodus and we see that there is a covenant keeping God who redeems his people and keeps them. So we'll get to that when we get to that chapter. So Yahweh is revealed and he is the saving Lord. You'll notice then the next one where God is the companion. He comes down on the mountain. He is with them. All right. And we see the Lord's public providences as he takes care of them in the wilderness as they travel food water whatever they need and then Yahweh revealed here we will see as he reveals himself in the holiness and in his redemption 
And in his law, he reveals himself who he is. He is our covenant Lord. Chapter 24, that's where the covenant is renewed right there. And then finally, Israel around the tabernacle. Here, God is the indweller. He comes to live among them. And we see the Lord's provision there, and he will be revealed. Chapter 32 to 34, don't have time to get into that at this point. We will. And then the indwelling Lord. Now, Motir did something else. And I really love this, and you've got it on your sheet. I might as well pull it up here because you're cheating and looking down anyway. So Motir also saw this in a chiastic way. You know, chiastic, uh, that's taken from a Greek word meaning a key, which was made by an X, okay? So here is an X. And so as you look at your sheet there in front of you, uh, you will see there's an A1. At the bottom, there's an A2. Then you'll see a B1 and a B2. And so what he's doing, he's going through Exodus, and he sees here that there's a pattern in everything. And there's a central focus for everything. What is the central focus in Exodus? Look at D. The grace of God and the law of God. There is where God wants to take his people. Okay? But they began building for Pharaoh. And then the Lamb of God was offered. And then we see the companion God who was with them through the wilderness. And then it starts working back outward. We're working on the other side of the X, so to speak, where there's an indwelling God. But instead of the Lamb of God, the people substitute a golden calf. By the way, it wasn't a calf. It was a little tiny, sweet little calf that you could hold in your arms, set up there nicely. Oh, is that a cute? No, it was a bull. That's the Hebrew word indicates it was a bull. And, and where do you think they got that idea to worship a bull? Exodus. And, I mean, in, in Egypt. In Egypt. We'll see that. And then finally, building for God. So they were building for Pharaoh. At the end, they're building for God. We, we build uh, our own lives around ourselves and everything else, but we should be building for God. Uh, this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So there's your, your uh, outlines there that I hope will help you see. Do you catch a picture then that there is, these are just not random notes that Moses wrote down. There's a pattern to everything just as there was a pattern to the tabernacle. All right. So as the great Old Testament story of salvation, Exodus set the pattern for salvation in Christ. Jesus becomes the new Moses. Even in John chapter 1, you know, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we get this analogy over and over. And the new Exodus, by going down to Egypt, passing through the waters of baptism, tested in the wilderness. Jesus did all these things, then he went up to the mountain. Look at, look at something here from John chapter, uh, Luke chapter 9. I love this. Stunning. Uh, use of the word exodus here after Jesus spoke to his disciples in terms of denying themselves, taking up the cross, following him, as well as pointing out the coming kingdom of God in 927 of Luke. Here's what we read. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. We call this what? Transfiguration. 
So he has changed, metamorphosizes the Greek term, actually. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Probably two of the most outstanding Old Testament figures, two of which we never saw a funeral for. Moses went up into a mountain and God took care of him. Elijah was carried away. All right. Here are these two. And these two who appeared in glory and spoke. Here's what they talked about. Wouldn't you love to have been there and heard? Well, he tells us what they talked about. He spoke of his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. You see the word departure? Do you know what the word is in the original language? Exodus. Let's talk about the Exodus. And who better to talk about the Exodus with than Moses? <laughs> you know? And Elijah had a pretty amazing Exodus himself. They are talking about Jesus' Exodus that he would accomplish. Another word for that word accomplish is fulfill. Fulfilling the picture of the Old Testament. Fulfilling the picture of that exodus with the new exodus as Jesus would die on the cross and become the way out of our sin and our misery. Now, let me show you a pattern of something. You've got exodus, which really begins this story of redemption in the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament. The first book of the New Testament is... Matthew. Okay, you've got that on your sheet too. Notice some parallels. Exodus preceded by 400 silent years. Matthew preceded by 400 silent years. Hmm. The opening genealogy connects with the prophecies of the past in Exodus 1. The opening genealogy connects with the prophecies and the promises of the past in Matthew 1. In the fullness of time, silence is broken and sending of a son Moses, fullness of time in Matthew, silence is broken and sending a son. Are you picking up a pattern yet? Okay. Israel goes down into Egypt. All right, what does Jesus do? He goes down to Egypt, chapter 2, 13 to 15. Israel was called out of Egypt. And what happened? In fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus was called out of Egypt. Israel passed through the Red Sea. Jesus passed through the waters of the Jordan in baptism. Israel was called my firstborn son in Exodus 4.22. Jesus is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was not well pleased with the people in the wilderness. It says that in Scripture. They failed. But Jesus came to fulfill all the word of the law for us. His active obedience. He journeyed through the wilderness for 40 years, that is, the Israelites. And Jesus journeyed through the wilderness for 40 days, again, picking up the symbols. And Jesus met with God, or Israel met with God on the mount to hear his law. And Jesus gave the teachings in Matthew 5 through 7. And what was part of the focus of the teachings? The law and the implications of the law. It was said, but I say to you, over and over. Okay, and you've got that. You can work through that yourself. So are you seeing how Exodus isn't just the old history? It is history that forecasts our own histories. Okay. This might seem a little strange here, what I'm about to do. But it's about the gospel and redemption. Heidelberg Catechism. What is the only comfort in life and death? 
I won't read it all, but you should know this or be familiar with it, I should say, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit he assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live for him. I said I wasn't going to read all that, but I just couldn't stop myself. That is so good. What a great statement. And just in in the Luke series, you just quoted this. And it's amazing that it comes back to this because question two, I want you to notice words I've highlighted too. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou enjoying this comfort mayest live and die happily? How can you know that you're God's child? Three, the first, how great my sins and miseries are because you can't be saved unless you know you need to be saved. You've got to see yourself as a sinner. This, Calvin makes this point in his institutes right off the bat when he says you need to know yourself and then know God. All right. Second, how I may be delivered. I'm in misery. How can I be delivered? From all my sins and miseries. And the third, how shall I express my gratitude to God for such of a deliverance? Now, I, I brought this up because it came to my attention as I was reading a, uh, a new book by a guy that I have lost. Um. When I went to school back in the 1800s, I sat next to one of my classmates was a guy named uh, Michael P.V. Barrett. He, we were in Hebrew class together, and we kept trying to look over on his sheet to see what he was doing so we'd know what to do. This guy was a genius from the start. He had a gift for Hebrew. I went into Greek. I thought Greek was a lot easier. He went into Hebrew, and he, he worked and worked, and he has written a number of books. And one of his, his latest book is The Gospel of Exodus. Uh, he is Presbyterian. He's OPC. Uh, he is uh, over academic affairs at Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids. Uh, but I was reading. I saw this book, and I got it. I started reading this book, and I thought, okay, this, this is too good. Because look at the three words I've highlighted, misery, deliverance, gratitude. This is the Gospel of Exodus. He, this is what he writes. He, he wants to give us a paradigm of salvation. Misery, deliverance, gratitude. These three words sum up the experience and testimony of every Christian. Significantly, these words mark the threefold division of the Heidelberg Catechism, which so personally and experientially defines and applies the great truths of the Gospel as understood from a biblical perspective and in the Reformed tradition. In many ways... These three words constitute the rubric rubric, uh, that overlays all of Scripture. And my point is, and he goes on to give a bunch of those examples. My point in all of this is that the book of Exodus is a paradigm of salvation and accordingly conforms to the salvific uh, rubric, I wish you wouldn't use all those big words, of misery, deliverance, and gratitude. There is hardly a component of the gospel Truth that does not find expression in Exodus. The slavery in Egypt is a picture of the misery of sin's bondage. The escape, our way out 
from Egypt is a vivid picture of deliverance. And Israel's response to God's law and commitment to the service of the tabernacle are evidence of gratitude. Therefore, the Heidelberg Catechism's formula for the Christian life provides a fitting structure of Exodus, rich with gospel lessons. And so he, he outlines then, he gives us a basic outline of misery, 1 through 12, deliverance, 13 to 18, and gratitude. This is our salvation. This is the picture of our salvation. And I thought that that would be helpful to you. So let me get on then. Let the journey begin. Let's go to Exodus 1. I still have 15 minutes. Hallelujah. Oh, wait a minute. I did want to give you this. Some key verses. I may only hit a couple of them here. I did not write those down on the sheet. Probably the key verse, uh, many people say, to Exodus is this, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. All right, there's the miseries. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's, that's Exodus. Exodus 6, 6 and 7. Now, if I go to the second section, I would choose these verses. Exodus 19, 4 through 6. Here again is the salvation we have seen and applies to us. You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation that could easily be quoted in the new testament wait a minute it is quoted in the new testament peter says that see so here's the thing we're seeing our salvation and what god has done in exodus that now has been completed in jesus christ third section Uh, Key verses, 34, 6, and 7 of Exodus. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, that's Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear uh, the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So there you have some key verses from each section. And again, I don't know if we will go through the whole book over a series of a couple of years or what using 12-week segments. But there you can see the whole picture. All right, so 1, 1 through 7. Let's move through some things. Point A, we're going to see three points quickly. God making a people for himself. Verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, or literally, and these. Genesis, a book unto itself, and it, the next book begins, and, these are the names. Next book says, and, and the next book says, and, and then, and, for Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's because this is the book of the law. This is all that, that God is revealing that we need, and it's actually one unit. It's the Pentateuch, the five scrolls. Now, what follows here, 
verse 1 is a listing of Jacob's sons who followed him on that journey. Uh, it, this is comparable. You can see it's, it's like in Genesis 46, 27, there's a photograph, so to speak, of the people who left. So here, when we come to Exodus, the first thing they do is they pull out the photograph. All, right. All those people in Genesis 46, yeah, they came down here. This is true history. And as we saw earlier, Jacob found himself in a difficult situation. There was a famine in the land. And so he had this opportunity to leave Canaan. Should I or should I not? We, we went through all of that. God said, chapter 46, verse 3, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I'm going to use this in your life. I will be there. So from that place, Jacob packed up all the clan. The number of the faces, if you count them there on the photograph, was 70. And now in 1-5, Exodus 1-5, he pulls out the same picture, and there are the 70. But time passes. Many die. They all die, including Joseph. And yet many more are born, so that the numbers are growing by leaps and bounds. Here's what I want you to look at. Look at verse 7. There are seven different words used in this chapter to describe the growth of the family tree. Verse 7, we'll just look there for a minute. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong. So the land was filled with them. And it will go on from there and add a couple of more, more words. Why is that there? Okay, okay. Why didn't you just say that they grew? They multiplied. Why do you have to put all these words here? Because they were spreading out all over the place. This is the problem Pharaoh's going to have. They're everywhere that I look. I recently, Kathy and I went to a wedding, a Jewish wedding up in New Jersey. Wow. I've been to some Baptist weddings that were pretty good. This, This was out of this world. It was amazing. But I looked around everywhere, and there were Jewish people everywhere. We were only one of about three or four families that were Gentiles invited to this wedding. But boy, they were just everywhere. And this is what's happening here. But I don't want you to miss the real impact of this. Do these words sound familiar to you about uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill? Genesis 1.28, when God created the world, He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We find it again after the flood. Noah, in chapter 9, verse 1 of Genesis, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Now, that was a new beginning. Now, here is a new beginning. It's a fulfillment of the creation mandate but it's also God's creation of a nation, a people for himself. So this is, this is pretty amazing. So uh, God is fulfilling his promises. He's doing exactly what he said. Psalm 105 uh, says this, and you see that on the screen. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned there in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. Ah. Great days for God's people there early on. They really were. But then something happens. Verse 8, we come to the next point. God's people facing persecution in the world. 
Now, I want you to notice this outline is going to also parallel the lives of us today. God makes for himself a people, but then his people have to live in a world that is against them. So, the, the author here gives us a reader's alert with the word now in verse 8. Now, you know, that was then. That was back then. This is now. And he says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It's a common experience for most of us in, in life. I mean, time passes, things change, people forget. I forget why I go into a room. The other day, I, 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 I had a bag of chips that I needed to put up in the cupboard. So I went over to the fridge and opened the fridge to put the chips in. Okay, this is the guy standing up here teaching you. So be sure, like Paul said, you know, in Acts, you know, you check out everything I say <laughs> because I mean, got out of the wrong cupboard. Okay, all right, getting back to my lesson here. Um, so things have changed, and, and this is what happens. For instance, if you've had a restaurant you've always gone to, a certain business, and ownership changes, personnel changes, it's just not the same, right? I mean, that happens in churches. You're in a church for a while, churches have changes, new pastor comes. It's just not the same. Well, no, it's not the same. But now this is a very negative thing. Taking the throne is a ruler unacquainted with Joseph. All that he's done to save Egypt and how much Egypt really owes to this Hebrew prince. But this new pharaoh isn't interested in roots and remembering other people. He, he never took a class in church history from Rick Hutton. He didn't know what happened with God's people. So he wants to make a name for himself. And like so many small men in big places, his insecurity and paranoia regarding outsiders drive him to do some things to keep people under his thumb. Pharaoh sets in motion a series of policies, a total of three. It's not that he had these, okay, I got three policies I'm going to initiate. He did these one after another, and you will see the progression of it. But look here with me in verse 9 and 10. We see Pharaoh's fear here. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight up against us and escape from the land. One little textual note here. Uh, they will rise up against us, you know, fight us, and then escape from the land. Well, you might say, well, yeah, that's, that's exactly what they wanted to do. But Moses did not ask for that when we get on into the chapters. They wanted to go out and worship God and come back to the land. This Hebrew word that is used here could also mean to go up in the land, to be high in the land, to mount up. This actually could be a sense that they want to take over. That makes really good sense in the context. But that, that's a pay your money, you know, make your choice. So what is his plan? First policy, got it here, verses 8 to 10, is slavery. Pharaoh's fruit scheme began... Uh, was to, let's say, enslave the people of Israel. And he does, and it's bad. Just as there were seven words earlier that spoke of the growth of Israel, there are now seven words that sketch a very ugly picture of what has come upon them. Look at the words there, beginning in verse 11. There is affliction. That is, he wants to bring them low. He wants to depress them. He wants to push them down and suppress them. Second, there's heavy burdens, which is forced labor. 
He's going to put upon them things. He's going to demand of them. And they still got to make their own way. But they've got, he's got, they got to do what he says. There is oppression in verse 12. Used twice in verses 13 and 14 is the word ruthlessly. It's associated with violence and brutality. Uh, the, the literal word in Hebrew means to break apart. I, I, I am going to tear these people apart. I'm going to put them down. And then we have a summary here in verse 14. And made their lives bitter with hard service. Hard service is severe. I'm going to make this so tough on them. They won't like me, but I'm going to control them. They're not going to take over us. And what is Israel? You see those seven words? We just studied words. Do, are, have any of us gone through all of that? I know you've been going through hard times. I've been through difficult times, but nothing, nothing, nothing compares to this at all. I've lived a life of ease compared to this. And so I can imagine, though, if I were like this, because I know how I complain anyway when one thing goes wrong. I had a little hangnail this week, and it bothered me to no end. And I was just, Lord... All right, this ain't no hangnail. What have we done to deserve this? All right, question. So when things go bad, it's always because of sin, right? When things go bad in your life, it's because of sin in your life, right? No, it's not. John chapter 9, man was born blind. Okay, Lord, who sinned this man was born blind? Did his parents do it or did he do it? That he was born blind? You mean he sinned in the womb? Yeah, he didn't behave himself. He kicked too much. No. Sometimes, there's two things here to keep in mind. In Genesis chapter 3, we're reminded that um, whenever um, man sinned, God said there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There is an animosity here in this passage that is a fulfillment or is is an example of Genesis 3. Furthermore, we live in a broken world. And because we live in a broken world, suffering is inevitable. So, uh, he uses, God will use his suffering for good. Now, I will say this, because my time is running out. More about that tonight. Pastor Bullock asked me earlier this week if I could take... Sunday night, take 15, 20 minutes to talk. I'm going to talk about the suffering here and our suffering and what God has to say about suffering. So if you want to hear more about that, you can come tonight. But the result of this policy move is, um, have you ever heard the saying, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction? Anybody know where that's from? Newton's third law of motion? Okay. Maybe we could apply that here because look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Okay, we're going to fracture them. Oh, yeah, sure, you're going to do that. God had a different plan. They multiplied even more. Okay, so this is God's grace, not Newton's law here. And uh, second policy. Let me go through just a couple of things here. I'll hit these because I don't know if, if Rick will come back to them or not, but I'll hit them when I come back. I have to preach somewhere next Sunday, so Rick will be here. Uh, 
for you. Second policy was a quiet genocide. He told the midwives that they need to um, kill the Hebrew children. But what did he say? If you have an NIV Bible, it says, if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, don't kill it. Okay? And I paraphrase that. But NIV is a paraphrase anyway. So the, um, what he really said is, if it's a son. See, we, we, we kind of neutered that passage. Uh, children aren't just a boy or a girl. They're somebody's son or somebody's daughter. And this passage emphasizes that so strongly. So if it's a if it's a son, if you see if you deliver a baby as a son, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. Girls are not a problem. That's why, by the way, I had three daughters. I, I knew the girls were not a problem. Oh, don't ask me. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, I, this is going to come back. Rick's going to teach in chapter two next week. And the interesting thing to me is. Pharaoh, throughout all this, thought, okay, no problem. You know, just keep the girls alive. You know, we can intermarry with them, whatever. Uh, just, we'll keep the girls, but kill the boys. Watch what happens. How many women are involved in chapters 1 and 2 in bringing about the Savior, the Deliverer, Moses? That's amazing. Let me give you one more thing here. So, God is protecting His people. Uh, this is the third point for today. God protecting his people and accomplishing his purposes in verse 22. Third policy was overt genocide. Okay, policy number two didn't work because the, the, the women feared God. So they didn't kill the babies. Why didn't you do that? Well, the Hebrew women were too quick. But anyway, so he said, okay, all you Egyptians, go out there, find Hebrew babies Especially the sons, the sons, kill the sons. You can leave the daughters. And you know what the result was? Father, thank you for this day. And we thank you for your goodness and grace in our salvation. Thank you for your love for us who are so unlovely, who are in our misery. You came to deliver us. And so now may we go into this next service with gratitude, knowing that you have redeemed us and that you are with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.